0: Before we get started, a quick note. If you haven't yet, please listen to episodes 2 through 4 in this season on Learning to Change, where we tell the stories of three groups who have modeled our season theme. We had to cut so much good stuff out to create those stories, so now we're releasing extended cuts of the individual interviews. We hope you'll like them as much as we do, and that they lead you to a richer appreciation for what it means to learn to change. This is Climate
1: Conversations by ClimateX. Today we're going to be talking with Vanessa Rule, who is the co-founder of Mothers Out Front and also the Director of Learning and Expansion for Mothers Out Front. You might hear our producer Dave
0: chiming in here. Here's Vanessa.
2: So I'm Vanessa Rule, I'm the Co-founder and learning and expansion director for Mothers Out Front. Also co-founder of Better Future Project and 350 Massachusetts. I've been organizing on climate change for 11 years
0: now. Could we go back on on one aspect of your title, your role, Mothers Out Front? It was expansion. What was it? Learning Learning and expansion. Yeah. Yeah. You want to know what that's about? I'd love to hear yeah. more about learning and expansion because that's...
2: And how are they tied together? awesome. Right. So expansion is how do, we, how do we go to scale, right? How do we grow beyond our existing states?
0: So you
1: just moved to California, got things going, San Jose and other places yep. in California.
2: California is going to be turning into what we call a, a deep organizing state. That, so that has staff on the ground and... I've been working with moms in between six and eight other states in the last year and a half who've wanted to get involved, but just working with them remotely, which has been a mm-hmm. really interesting learning experience as a community organizer. You know, organizing is all about relationships and sort of face-to-face interactions and being right in the thick of it in terms of the strategy piece. And so you know, talking to people 3,000 miles away and s- figuring out how to support them to do this has been a really different approach. And so one of the things we're trying to figure out is the balance between depth and breadth in building power, you know where you need people that are moving policy in a very concrete way, and that you need you know a lot of power for that, you need deep organizing so and a lot of resources to make that happen. But we also know part of the strategy is to shift the the cultural narrative within which change is possible, right? And so decision makers are looking at what's politically feasible within a cultural context. And so there's the, you know, getting sort of those concrete policy wins, but also changing people's relationship to climate change and what's, you know, what's possible.
0: Uh-huh. Could you go go back on the, yeah. the depth and breadth thing for a moment? Sure. Um, and just say a little bit more about what, what those constitute. What's, what's yeah, the depth? Yeah. So, so breadth?
2: depth is, um, so, One of the questions that you'd asked me was, at what scale do we operate? And, you know, basically we need a global transition. But our understanding is, you know, we have the experts, we understand the problem, we know what we need to do to address the climate crisis. What we don't have is political will. In order to do that, we need to move decision makers, and we need to build political power. And the scale at which you do that is very local, because it depends on People's ability to build relationships with each other, to experience agency together. So, they need to be able to find things that they can actually get results on. They need to learn to organize. And that takes a lot of leadership development, it takes a lot of learning. And at the same time, you know, there are mothers all over the country who are ready to jump on and say, like, we need our voices heard. And so, the breath is really about just giving mothers a voice. But we know just giving people a voice isn't going to change you know, it's not going to necessarily result in concrete change at the policy level. So really utilizing the interface between those two things of like winning those concrete political wins. And then just, you know, I always think of, I don't know if it's a good analogy, but the Tea Party did a really great job there, or just mobilizing people to be really loud, right, yeah. in these town meetings. And
0: Yeah, we should be learning from everybody here, right?
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: I'd love to hear a little bit more about the leadership development and learning activities that you've been involved with or are mm-hmm. happening right now yep. uh, that reflect what you've been saying?
2: The people that we work with, they call themselves unsuspecting activists, right? Mothers who have never done any kind of political activism or organizing, who it turns out many of them have felt alone and isolated and paralyzed by the sense of overwhelm. And so the first step is to create community so they're not feeling alone and realizing that they can work together to affect change. But then there are, you know, tried and true organizing skills that, you know, social movements have drawn on for, you know, the history of time. And, you know, like knowing how to have a one-to-one conversation with somebody to find out what they're interested in and see sort of where your interests match and how to get them involved, learning how to, tell your story, learning how to develop a strategy, Mm -hmm. learning how to organize a rally. So there's a lot of learning and there's a lot of risk-taking, I think, for a lot of people as they grow. And so one of the most gratifying things about this work, to me, is seeing people's lives transform through the work, you know, that they do together, both in terms of realizing that they don't have to figure this out alone and that there's incredible hope in working together, but also in discovering things they never thought they could do right the number of people who've said like i never thought i could do public speaking i never thought i'd you know go mm-hmm. and talk to my elected officials i mm-hmm. never thought you know i'd be running a training uh or you know building a team and i've had members mothers up front say to me like this has been like going back to college you know or it's opened up these pathways that i didn't even know were possible.
1: Any examples come to mind that uh, really illustrate right now what's happening in that learning space and growing and transforming for members of Mothers Out Front?
2: I mean it's happening all the time right so like when Kelsey and I started the first question was you know is it even possible to engage mom on this issue and I you know I was telling you earlier that I didn't come to doing this work as a mother even though my kids were three and six when I started and Because within my group of friends, of mothers, it was a really unpopular topic, right? It was the downer conversation. Like, nobody wanted to touch that thing. So I was not sure, you know, how – when Kelsey showed up and said, hey, I think, you know, I'm a mother. The reason I'm doing this is because I think about my children and there must be other mothers out there. The question was, you know, how are people going to respond and how do we get them to, you know – step away from their incredibly busy lives to get involved and I mean it feels like we've tapped into this untapped gold mine, right and it's about giving people a viable pathway for action and then connecting them to each other and then they learn together so a huge part of our learning approach is to create conditions for learning and you know We have some ideas and some tried and true practices, but Mm -hmm. everything we do involves a reflective piece. Mm -hmm. So every meeting ends, every Mother's at Front meeting ends with what we call pluses, deltas, and key learnings. Mm -hmm. You know, what went well about this meeting? What would you change to make it better next time? And what's one thing you learned? And, you know, that's like every meeting all the way to a major action. So there's this constant idea that we're figuring this out together, that there isn't you know, tried and true path or formula. There's no
1: handbook that you can pull off the shelf and say, okay, now we're at step two. I'm trying to
2: write it, <laughs> but it keeps getting rewritten. <laughs> you know, it's like every time we move to a new state, you know, or a new community, it's like somebody, I mean, people are bringing their resources and mm-hmm. their, their life experiences and different insights mm-hmm. that enrich our approach. So it's mm-hmm. it's constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. So one, yeah, one of the challenges is capturing those learnings and then figuring out what can you codify and And going back to expansion and, you know, replicate. And what do you need to sort of honor as sort of, I think it's more like the process as opposed to the content, Mm -hmm. you know.
1: You can't necessarily uh, fast forward every group. They have to start where they are and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. So part of how we encourage learning is through the process of coaching. And that's a scary word for some people. But. But there's always somebody who's, we talk about coaching as, you know, being the fish out of the fishbowl. Like you don't know you're in water if you're in water. And so having that Mm -hmm. sort of person asking you questions to get you to sort of, you know, connect the dots is a really important part of the process. And, Mm. and that connects back to the leadership development.
0: I was wondering if we could um, go back in time (laughs) before Uh, mothers out front. You, You have a you you have a history of working on these issues that definitely predates, right? Mm-hmm. Take us back before Mothers Out Front. What what did doing this work look like?
2: Well, I think it was probably very similar to what a lot of people feel when they start getting involved in Mothers Out Front, which was I thought I had to do it all by myself and that I thought I had to have all the solutions and all the answers, right? But I had the instinct that I couldn't do it by myself. So I went and, you know, I saw inconvenient truth, and it scared the living hell out of me. And for whatever reason, that spoke to me in a way that I think doesn't necessarily to most people. But my reaction was just to go find people in my community who were working on this and, and approached it from a very rational, technical perspective, which was, oh, this is, you know, we have too many emissions. And so we need to transition off fossil fuels and this is a technological problem. So we, I was leading a group called Somerville Climate Action, and we divided the, the sort of the city's carbon footprint into the different sectors and developed a strategy for working with each sector to draw down. And then it became clear that that wouldn't cut it in terms of the rate at which the science was you know, evolving and the, the data was coming in. And then 350.org made it clear that this was a political problem, not a technical problem. And so I learned about movement building. And my entry there was actually through a group of students called Students for a Just and Stable Future, who said, well, 350 is a great goal, but how are we going to get there? And they said, we're, right before the Copenhagen 2009 UN Climate Summit, said, we're going to call on the Massachusetts legislature to meet. You know, all of electricity needs 100% by 2050 with renewable energy. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to protest having to sleep in dorms and homes powered by fossil fuels. And we're going to pitch tents on the Boston Common, sleep outside in protest and then put on business attire on Monday morning and walk into the statehouse and say, you know, we need to transition. And so I joined that. And, you know, the students really led the way for me and opened that door to movement building.
0: So there's this kind of pre-mothers out front way of looking at movement building. Yep. Could you could you say a little bit more, kind of summarize like what that looks like for people who haven't been part of one of these organizations?
2: Yeah. So it's about developing leadership in others. And, you know, I'm drawing a lot of what I'm sharing here is is actually drawn from the work of Marshall Ganz at the Harvard Kennedy School, who has, mm-hmm. you know, looked at the best practices in organizing history and developed his own framework and and codified it and now teaches a class. But he defines leadership as enabling others to take action in the face of uncertainty, I think. And so it really is about enabling others. And, you know, when we talk about the paradigm shift, or sort of how do we get, how do you build political will? It's really changing our understanding and our relationship to power from power over to power with, and the idea that you have experts at the top who are going to have the solutions and that you need to trust them to do that. And shifting from that paradigm to the idea that it is incoming together and trusting ourselves and having the agency, the collective agency, to create the future or the world that we want.
1: But you're not saying science and technology is not an important piece of the overall Oh yeah, but that's, not,
2: that's not the missing piece of the puzzle right now, right? Mm. So we have science and technology. What we don't have, we have incredibly powerful special interests at the decision-making table that are representing one set of interests. And what we need is to have more people at the table because the more perspectives you have at the table, the better decisions you make, right? And so right now, most decision-makers really aren't working to put the interest of children first, uh, and if they were, they would be making really different decisions. so mm-hmm. our job is to represent you know those kids who don't have a voice and to make sure that their interests are represented as we make yeah
1: what's an example of right now what two thousand and eighteen the Mothers Outfront is doing in that regard to bring those uh, children's perspectives or future generations' perspectives to the table?
2: I mean, every campaign we run, you know, has that perspective. And so, I mean, it's it's pretty wonky stuff, honestly, uh, which is the other incredible thing about Mothers at Front is that we've gotten, you know, people really interested in things like fossil fuel infrastructure and things like community choice energy, you know, which are these sophisticated, you know, mechanisms to try to reduce emissions.
1: So any campaign... That Mothers Upfront is doing reflects that, I guess, is what you're saying.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're acting with our voices, right, as mothers and, and bringing that voice into the, into the decision making room, mm-hmm. which it really hasn't been. And in terms of the overall climate movement, you know, we found that when people talk about climate change, first of all, they connect it to the environment. They don't talk about people much, mm-hmm. or certainly not children and that that really changes the dynamics so having mothers show up as opposed to you know environmentalists quote unquote or students is a really different experience i think for a lot of politicians
1: is there a he- recent hearing or something that you were involved with or others mothers out front where that perspective came to the fore. Yeah,
2: so our mothers are really, really good at telling their stories. And, you know, we coach them and train them in telling their stories and really Mm -hmm. speaking. So one of the things we've learned is that facts are a lot less compelling than stories and people relating to each other as human beings. And so mothers talking about you know, what this is gonna mean for their children and why they're involved and making it really granular. And I mean, making it real basically It's definitely a tactic that we use a lot. And just having moms, you know, show up at hearings and and there are hearings every day. I mean, there was one in Boston last week. Honestly, I can't remember.
1: Could be the city level, could be town level, could be state level, could be federal, any level. Not federal at this point, but yeah, city
2: and state. So you talked about this kind of mindset shift from power over into power with.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm wondering what that shift was like for you. Is that hard? Or do you remember when that kind of clicked for you? Or was that something you kind of came to the table with and are trying to talk about more? I mean, I think it was always intuitive at some level, but it wasn't articulated. And, you know, we talk about organizing is about making the implicit explicit. And that's what a lot a lot of what we do in terms of learning. Right? It's like all this stuff is... Something that human beings do, I think, naturally, but becoming very aware of how you use sort of those approaches explicitly and being strategic about it is what we do. So I remember I think it was like the policy director from 350.org I was having coffee with at one point and I was saying, you know, what do we need to do in Massachusetts to sort of really step it up? And he see he said, We need more more of you, right? You need to like go find other people and develop their leadership instead of trying to, to, to be the leader or holding on to power. And that's, that's I think, a real transformation that people go through when they get involved is, you know, I mean, everything from sitting at a house party and seeing people's light bulbs go off when we say, you know, you don't have to solve this problem by yourself and we're going to figure it out together. And the the, the palpable relief in the room I think is one of the things that allows people to get involved because I think that's one of the reasons people are so paralyzed. And, you know, our biggest enemy honestly is fear and and the sense of like, you know, not feeling like you can act. Once you get people to act, you realize that it actually doesn't take that much to get those decision makers to move. I mean, that's been one of the biggest surprises for me. I remember the first time I walked into the state house after sleeping out in the Boston Common with the students and You know, they taught me how to lobby my legislator. And, you know, it was the people's house. But there's, you know, there's that that division there.
1: How do you lobby your legislator?
2: (laughs) Well, you need to be really clear. You need to have an ask, right? A lot of the time they don't know they don't know anything about the issue so you know shifting from these people again are the power holders and the experts to realizing like they actually need you i mean the number of legislators and municipal officials who have said to us like we've been waiting for you like we've been wanting to do this but we are not empowered to literally and there's no way they can know you know all the things they need to know to know what to do and so you know we're not necessarily the experts but um, it really helps for them to be able to turn you know, during a hearing to the hundred mothers that have packed the room to say, you know, it's not me that's pushing this, it's them.
0: The mothers made me do it.
2: (laughs) They did. Right. And listen to your mother.
0: (laughs) What politician can
1: be against mothers, right?
2: Right. And I think the other thing we've seen, I mean, going back to sort of how we're leveraging, I mean, I don't know if it's the interest, but is somebody last night at a dinner of mothers actually was talking about the cockroach effect that if you see two cockroaches you know they are like a whole bunch more somewhere in your kitchen and it's sort of the same thing with the mothers where if you <laughs> like you have five mothers <laughs> who show up at a hearing you know there're about 100 right who like couldn't make it because they're you know at work or they're carpooling or whatever
1: they're doing um child care duties or something.
2: yeah so i think you know when when legislators and mm, elected officials see mothers show up, they take notice because they, I mean, they understand that we actually do have the power to decide whether or not they're going to stay in office down the road. And, you know, so the fossil fuel industry has a lot of money, but we have votes. We also have some money. And then we have our voices, you know, and that's really powerful in changing people's consciousness.
0: You've talked a bunch about this uh, awakening of empowerment in people, and it's, I think that's a theme that's going to be touching on a lot of our episodes across this season. I wonder if you could think of a moment in your life where you you woke up to that potential or watched somebody else wake up to it and just kind of talk us through a sort of story about that. Got anything come to mind there?
2: Well, there's a mother who lives in Cambridge, actually, and she, she tells the story about it. She came to a house party I facilitated like within the first three months and then – we held a house party facilitation training because we wanted mothers to, you know, be able to facilitate house parties. And she thought she was coming to training just to learn how to host a house party. Um, and she found herself in this training, like learning to be a house party facilitator. And
0: what's the difference between hosting and facilitating?
2: Well, opening your home and just, you know, basically saying, hey, you know, feel free to be in my space. living room and okay. L- okay. using okay. the space, you mm-hmm. know, g- providing snacks, but letting somebody else actually do the talking. Got it. Uh, What we were teaching her was how to do the talking and sort of being in the front of the room. And she said that, you know, she was terrified, but her instinct was just to say yes. And that's been her experience over and over and over again, right? That, you know, organizer would come to her and say, would you, you know speak at this rally. Would you, you know, lead a team? Would you do this? And it's just just keeps saying yes and taking those baby steps and realizing that there are other mothers who've done this and that you don't need to be an expert. All you need to do is be a mom. And not that all you need to do is be a mom, but (laughs) there's a lot that comes with that. And it's just about putting one step in front of the other and just following in other people's tracks. And so she's now coaching mom's in California and other parts of the country. And, you know, one of the things she says to them is just, I'm just one step ahead of you. And just that, that connection and that reassurance, just, you know, a lot of people just need courage, like they, they know what to do once they believe they can do it. But it's, it's shifting from, again, that place of, of powerlessness and, like, other people have the answers, they're experts out there to realizing that, like, we're the leaders we've been waiting for. Yeah.
0: I can't think of anything more necessary <laughs> in this situation.
2: Right. I think a lot of people are giving up, you know, given sort of the state of the world. And that's, to me, that's one of the most, that's what keeps me up at night because, and and, you know, how do you convince people that, it actually doesn't take that much. They don't need to drop their whole lives. They don't need to do anything heroic. But what's heroic is actually choosing to to do something. And it really doesn't take that much. I mean, just in the city of Cambridge, I don't know know whether Zainab told you this story.
1: Zainab McAfee. Yeah, Yeah.
2: who you spoke to. So they started by asking households to switch to clean energy, you know, on their utility bill to say we're going to, you know, choose renewables because you have that option. And then they got 100 households to do that. They went to I think most Cambridge City councilors and said, you know, we are doing this for our kids. This is this really matters to us. We're going to ask you to do the same thing. This is the right thing for you to do as a leader. We don't want you to stop at your own household. We want you to switch the city of Cambridge to clean energy. And they learned that the city of Cambridge had a municipal electricity contract with TransCanada, which is a company that exploits the tar sands and was behind building the Keystone XL pipeline. And so they they found one city councilor who uh, became a champion and sort of said, this is great. I'd love to support you on this. And who showed them the ropes and they put forth a resolution at city council to ask the mayor to break the contract with TransCanada and build a whole campaign around that. We're successful and now they're, you know, and I think the mayor committed to transitioning. The, they did break the contract and they're going to transition to a hundred percent renewable generated within the city of Cambridge in two years. So that's a micro example and you think, okay, how is, how is this going to affect climate change but if you're doing that in communities all over the country all of a sudden you have a movement that's able to shift you know things at the state level and then at the national level
0: yeah Mm -hmm. can you can you break down what what happened in cambridge just a little bit more for me like how long did it take (laughs) from from this like original idea to
2: frankly i don't know um the details but i think it was pretty quick i mean in terms of i would I mean, it took them a while to, you know, to get traction. They were one of our first teams. So again, going back to learning, you know, the San Jose, California team did something similar where they were sort of the tipping point on a campaign around um, this thing called community choice energy that basically gets a municipality to put in a certain amount of renewable energy, you know, that customers get in the city in its portfolio Mm -hmm. and um, this fight you know the divided city council had been going on for 6 years and the moms showed up in their t-shirts with their kids they had the kids testified they testified and you know within the span of a few months that was they was done like they had unanimous vote cuz the city councilors didn't want to come out against the mothers and the kids so it's pretty pretty magical yeah
0: yeah, yeah. it's and it's unlike a lot of the experiences i've had <laughs> trying to push these things along so uh-huh. i I am so that? inspired by, you know, hearing hearing some of the things that that your group's done.
2: What do you think the difference
0: is? That's a fascinating question, it's one that I that kind of keeps me awake at night. Uh-huh. What's the difference? I I try to go in and and tell my story why this is important to me.
2: Do you do it by yourself?
0: Uh, I I don't think I'm nearly as organized as y'all. I mean, I'm I'm part of 350 Mass. Okay. You know, so I'm usually yeah. got a few colleagues in there with me, but I'm just thinking about the city of Cambridge has this contract and you want us to rip that whole thing out and and completely change? Oh, that's going to take a long time, you know?
2: Well, I think, I mean, if I think about 350 Mass, I think one of the things that Mothers Up Front does is it acts very locally, which is counterintuitive, right? Um, So there's a sweet spot where individual actions are important, but like we know that We're not gonna solve things that way because the problem is we need to change the rules of the game, right? And we need decision makers to 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 make different rules. So Mm -hmm. so it's not gonna be enough for us to just change our behavior. And then if you go too high too fast, you just don't have the power, right? So in Massachusetts, our first campaign, we were supporting, we were helping moms get households to switch as an expression of our political will. Just sort of like, you know, Cesar Chavez got people to boycott grapes. It was that was our equivalent. But what we did was we went to Governor Patrick to ask him to sign an executive order that would have banned any new fossil fuel infrastructure in the state. And we had two meetings with him. And both times he said, you know, I'm behind you, but you don't have the numbers. Like, show me the numbers. And so we didn't win that, that first campaign. And what we learned from that was we just had, hadn't built enough power. Right. And where you build the power is very much in your community because winning is contagious or it's it's addictive right? So that Cambridge team doing that emboldened other teams and that there are stories like that, you know, all over Massachusetts and beyond. And so it's sort of counterintuitive, but you actually have to start small to grow big.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you're, you're getting into another thing I wanted to touch on, which is how do you share the successes in one of your, you know, local groups more broadly? It feels like that's a key part of, of solving the bigger challenge here. We've, we've got Groups doing great things and innovative things. How do we how do we scale well, that developing up?
1: Developing a movement,
0: I think, yeah. is what you were talking about. Yeah.
2: What's so sharing the sharing the stories, I think, is really critical. So you know, increasingly, I mean, one of the things that I've been doing on expansion has been to bring mothers from different states together, right, to to talk about those stories and sort of having this vision of oh, they did this in this place and here, you know, that's very uh, inspiring and emboldening to to mothers who are starting to do it somewhere else. So definitely again bringing people together and you know creating that cross-fertilization you know we have i mean we we have a lot of of group meetings you know where team leaders come together every couple of weeks or, or once a month to, to share their stories and when a team sort of locks into something and figures something out, it's like, what did you do there? And then other people start replicating it. And so sort of a self-organizing, you know, every team is sort of uh, an incubator uh, and they all have different strengths. So, you know, every Mothers at Front team innovates in some way and in a way that other teams can just pick up on, so.
0: Yeah. I'm getting a sense that this is all, almost all volunteer driven, right? It is. People must be putting... We say
2: volunteer-led.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Must be a lot of uh, time going into this, though. Do you you have the sense that you get more time per week out of people than your typical advocacy group?
2: Yeah, I think we have the equivalent of 42 staff and full-time equivalent staff in volunteer hours a year. So the average, you know, I think... I actually don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but something, you know, between like one and 20 hours a week. Now, there are some real equity issues with that, because a lot of the people who can afford to give time are often, you know, wealthier folk. And so, you know, we're really compensating on that front to make sure that we're investing, you know, staff resources into marginalized communities or communities that don't have, yeah, same resources. What's an example of that? Right now, we're working in uh, Hampton Roads, Virginia, um, mm. which is really sort of ground zero for sea level rise. It's- sure. um They're having
1: sunny day floods and things like that. Yes. Yeah.
2: And a place where they don't talk about climate change, they talk about or sea level rise, they talk about recurrent flooding, where there's just been systematic oppression of communities and relatively little civic engagement. I mean, New England is really, Massachusetts is very uh, privileged in that way, right, that people are not, it's not that big a lift to get people to walk into City Hall and tell their stories in communities that have traditionally, you know, been oppressed. It's a whole different thing. So, you know, I think one of the things that's amazing about what we're doing is we're working on climate change, but really we're rebuilding democracy, you know, and sort of getting people to to change their relationship to power and realize that they should have a voice and they have a voice if they come together and organize. And that, you know, moving from being alone and vulnerable to coming together and realizing you can take on Goliath that way.
1: It sounds also like you're customizing it to each local situation. Hampton Roads yeah. is different than Boston.
2: Yeah. So that's the other interesting thing about Mother's Left When I uh, worked at the very local level, when I started doing climate work, we had some national organizations that would come in and have an agenda and say, you know, well, this is really interesting what you're doing. But really, like, if you want to do something meaningful, work on my national campaign. And that made me crazy. Like, I hated that so much oh, okay. because I felt like, you know, we were having a great time. We were innovating. We were doing some really interesting work. And um And I think one of the things I love about Mothers Out Front is that we're going to scale, but in a way that truly honors local decision making and trusting that people have the resources and the knowledge that they need to get there. So, you know, the way we work is we sort of set – there's a goal, which is we want to transition off fossil fuels as swiftly, justly, and completely as possible – and then, you know, within that, how do you get there is going to really look different based on the local conditions.
1: What's the near future look like in terms of expansion, getting the learnings from one place to another, that sort of thing?
2: So a lot of our work is based on the 2008 Obama campaign. And there's a great book called Groundbreakers.
0: Um, That's the way it was organized.
2: Yes. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Well you know, really the model that we're using, which is about, like, building local teams and a lot of the organizing skills, teaching people how to, you know, do one-to-one one one to meetings to recruit each other and set up teams, develop, you know, sort of goals and do all the work that they need to do to win. Um, and electoral organizing is really different from issue organizing because, you know, electoral, it's really clear what the goal is. With us, it's, it's like, what is it going to take? Like, we're not totally sure. But one of the things about that story is, you know, every state, they would learn something, and it would, so the next state would be, like, that much more sophisticated, and I don't mean to say that the first, you know, but it's like every state we go into, we've learned that much more, and so we're starting just a little further ahead.
1: Building on the shoulders of uh, folks that have already tried it. Yes. Yeah.
2: So that's really exciting. So I'm super excited about California, because we're benefiting from five years of, of trial and error, and hopefully it's exponential growth, right? because of that, so it's very exciting. What is it that makes mothers in particular so good at this? Love, right, and commitment. I mean, this truly is, you feel it in your gut, right? And I mean, you can't go to sleep at night thinking about your children. So there's a level of commitment in that sense of, you know, a number of mothers say to me that they, they got to a point where they realized that nobody else was gonna fix this, and that they had to do it you know, who else is going to do it? Nobody's going to do it. And so they just have to go in there. And there's a fearlessness when you're fighting for somebody else that I think allows you to take some incredible risks. And then there's a whole there's a whole modeling. So you're, you know, this involves going out of your comfort zone to some extent, which is incredibly rewarding, because you find out you can do these things and you learn and it's it's a transformational experience. But but what gives people the courage is the love they have for their kids.
1: Courage and motivation to stay in, stay with it.
2: Right. So the number of times that I have felt overwhelmed, and and my daughter has actually said to me, "You can't give up."
1: I mean, she said
2: that to me. She says that to me on a (laughs) regular basis. Not that I think about giving up, but you know, I do. I mean, this is hard.
1: Discouraging sometimes. Yeah.
2: It is. I mean, it it feels. um, You know, when you see what's happening with you know, the U.S. pulling out of the. Paris Climate Agreement. I mean, I've been at this for 10 years and, you know, the numbers are going the wrong way. So at the same time, I've seen like how much the movement has grown, but they don't have the choice. And I think that's one of the things I loved about working with students was they have a clarity, right? Like we can, we can sort of, I think as older people afford to, to second guess ourselves, but when, you know, this is your future and that's, there's no alternative. It's a whole different thing.
0: I hope you get a chance to write that organizing manual. I'm it's going to be a bestseller
1: because <laughs> it could be used by lots of other organizations too, well, not just do, Mothers Up Front. We
2: do have it, and it's a constant, you know, work in progress. But yeah. it's actually on our website at uh, mothersupfront.org. You need to be signed up to our email list to have access to it, but it is there and it features. It's completely built around the the Massachusetts gas leaks case study. And so it, you know, basically tells the story of how they went from, you know, two moms to having an impact in the state legislature to give the utilities to, to consider gas leaks as an environmental threat for the first time. And, uh, and then sort of all the organizing practices that are attached to going from zero to 60
0: We hope you've enjoyed this extended interview cut. Please be sure to check it out in context in the prior Episode 3, Learning in Community with Mothers Out Front.